What is the gospel? The word gospel is derived from the Greek word evangel, meaning good news. Many of you know that already. Here at Sunrise, we articulate the gospel in short form all the time. You've heard it several times already this morning, but today I wanted to pause and focus on the gospel in more detail because I've been noticing, and I think I'm noticing more and more so-called evangelical teachers and writers out in the marketplace who are creating confusion about what the gospel really is. Some false gospels are easy to spot, but some aren't so easy. Now, I'm not talking about the, the gospels, the false gospels that uh, are easy to spot on, on television by the televangelists, the flashy televangelists. I'm talking about incorrect gospels that seem to be slipping underneath the evangelical radar at times that are starting to change the way many Christians speak about the gospel and think about the gospel and certainly how they teach and write about it. Some of these changes are being driven by this presupposition that the biblical gospel doesn't work anymore. That we're being, uh, we're being told a lot that in this post-modern and post-Christian society, people simply can't hear what the Bible is trying to say about sin and salvation. We're told it's too confrontational, the gospel is, and too alienating, too individualized. Maybe it's too westernized, too exclusive for today's pluralistic mindset. The idea that is if we want to reach anyone today with the gospel, we need to modify it to fit the current spirit of the age. While I was preparing this message, I picked up uh, one of Pastor Allen's Books of the Month. I don't know if you remember this Book of the Month. This is a book. uh, He stole my sermon title. It's called What is the Gospel? Uh, And it's by Greg Gilbert. I highly recommend it. I was glad that the Lord led me to pick that up while I was preparing this um, because it was very helpful. And he basically takes the same concern that I'm voicing to you today is that there's a lot of confusing gospel messages out there. And he gives one example. His his, uh, well, he gives lots of examples of these false gospels um, that he has seen circulating about in the evangelical world. This is his least favorite, and it's my least favorite too. I'll read it for you. The gospel is the good news that in the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. It was originally very good. But human beings rebelled against God's rule and threw the world into chaos. The relationship between humans and God was broken, as were people's relationships with each other, with themselves, and with their world. After the fall, however, God promised to send a king who would redeem a people for himself and reconcile creation to God once again. That promise began to be fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ, but it will be finally completed or consummated when King Jesus returns. Now note, there is a lot of truth in this paragraph, isn't there? This is a basic creation, fall, redemption, glorification kind of explanation. But it's not actually the gospel. It's a genius. It's genius and its danger lay in its studied ambiguity. You see, it has enough shades of the truth to slip in underneath the radar, uh, and because 
we as Christians have the Bible in our heads, we tend to project into this language and fill in the gaps. Let me tell you what I mean. When we see that humans rebelled, we think of Adam and Eve, of original sin, and even our own personal sin and rebellion, don't we? When we see world in chaos, we think of the fall and God's wrath being revealed on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And when we see that God sent King Jesus to redeem a people, we assume it means by his atoning death and resurrection. But it doesn't actually say those things, does it? So it's biblical enough that it slips through. It slips by the evangelical ears sometimes, but it's unbiblical enough that unbelievers can hear it and really agree with its basic outline. This is a very popular way to express the gospel today, and many who teach it are well-intentioned, trying to help us see a worldview, see the gospel in a broader context, but many are not well-intentioned, and many people know exactly what they're doing. They would argue that evangelicals have misunderstood the gospel all along and that we Westerners have mistakenly been focusing on individual people and individual salvation by grace through faith when really the gospel is about God's plan to renew the earth and restore the earth or transform the cities or transform the earth. You've probably heard this language, but this is a man-centered works-based, earth-centric gospel. It originates in collectivist political philosophies. And the key giveaway is that it renders the individual person as a means to an end. In other words, if Jesus came to save people, it's because he needs workers to help him transform the world or renew the world or the nations or its cultures. And many of the proponents of this gospel actually believe you can be saved by joining in that work, joining in the movement to renew the world. And they never quite say what they mean or exactly who will be redeemed or how or what this heaven on earth will look like or how it will come to pass. It's always left vague with subtle Sleight of hand, they remove the emphasis from your personal sin and salvation. And they exchange it with some abstract vision, unclear abstract vision of fixing or renewing the world. Uh, Greg Gilbert uh, uses another example here of a different way of articulating the gospel that you'll recognize This one says, the good news, that's the gospel, is that God's face will always be turned toward you, regardless of what you have done, where you have been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction, looking for you. Now, some will recognize this. We've watched uh, in this church on Wednesday nights a couple of years ago, the documentary, The American Gospel, that exposed a lot of the therapeutic ways that the gospel is presented in the evangelical church today. Again, there are elements of truth here. If we are steeped in scripture, we might read this too and project 
onto it, biblical context, like, oh, this is speaking of God's great love and his great mercy, which we've been singing about, and his compassion when we come to him and repent of our sin and how Jesus doesn't turn away repentant sinners when they confess and believe. But that's not what this says. That is not what this says. It's not the gospel. There are things you must believe and believe wholeheartedly in order to be saved. You notice neither of these so-called gospels contain any mention of personal sin or depravity, God's law, our guilt or accountability before God, God's wrath or judgment, heaven, hell, repentance, Christ's atoning death, Christ's resurrection, much less of justification by grace through faith. So we need to understand what is going on here. Everyone can make mistakes and accidentally leave something out of a gospel message. We've all gotten tongue-tied in trying to share the gospel in different ways with different people, sometimes reminding believers of the gospel, sometimes in introducing the concept to an unbeliever. But this is something else. This isn't a movement trying to help us start conversations with postmodern people. This is a movement trying to change the way the church understands the gospel and the way the church articulates the gospel and to change the way we teach it to our children. It's making its way deeper and deeper into evangelical, evangelicalism and it's drawing away, I'm afraid, the next generations with crafty, enticing, inspiring, therapeutic, and ear-tickling, abstract teachings that are not the gospel and that can't save anyone. So this morning, I want to get back to the basics and spend some time reminding us of what the true gospel really is. For most of you, this is not to teach you anything new, uh, but to remind ourselves of the true gospel and all its majesty. After all, this is what the angels long to hear. They didn't long to hear these watered-down political or therapeutic versions of the gospel. They longed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the scriptures, and believers love to hear it too. So where we have to start is by asking the question, why is the gospel necessary? Well, it's necessary because we are sinners accountable to a holy God, who has made himself clearly known to all people and who has already declared his condemnation and eternal wrath on sinners. The gospel begins with the fact that God is holy. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There's none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. And everybody remembers the verses from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah had the vision of the Lord sitting on the throne and the cherubim uh, uh, hovering about him and crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. There's many verses like this. The most accurate translation of the word holy, though, is separate. So to say that God is holy means he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, entirely separate from sin. 
entirely. Yes, we're made in his image, but he is not like us. He is holy. We were created, but he is self-existing. He is eternal. He's not a contingent being like us. He is all-powerful and omniscient and unchanging. He's so separate from sin and so holy, we can't even look upon his holiness, the Bible tells us, and live. Nor can he look upon sin. Habakkuk 1 verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So the gospel starts with a holy God. And next, we have to understand that we are accountable to this holy God, an idea that is, that is hard for our culture, really all cultures and all generations to accept, that we are accountable to God. Genesis 1 and 2 and many other scriptures make it clear that God created us all. He created you and me and the entire universe, and he is to be worshiped for that. Revelation 4.11, again, with those cherubim angels around the throne, it says there, or, or I'm sorry, this is the, uh, the elders uh, speaking back to Jesus saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Romans 1, verses 19 through 20. What can be known about God is plain to all men. Now, I could do... Many of you have heard me do my, my thing on my talk on evolution versus creation. I'm not going to do that this morning. I just want you to listen to what we all know is true from the scriptures, Romans verse one, chapter one, verses 19 and 20. What can be known about God is plain to all men because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that man is without excuse. You see, we all know, we can look at one another, we can look in the mirror, we can look at the world around us, and we know it did not create itself, and we know an all-powerful being must have created it, and we know that he must have created us, and we know he must be personal because we are personal. Romans 14.2 says, each of us will one day give an account of ourselves to that creator. Romans 3.19 says that on that day, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to him. So God is holy. We are accountable to him. And then, of course, there's the great problem that we are sinners. Well, what does it mean that we are sinners? First, it means we are violators of God's law. Follow me on this. If you have ever ignored God or been ungrateful or put our ho- or your hope in things other than God, then you have violated the first two commandments. 
If we've ever misrepresented God or used his name flippantly, we violated the third commandment. If we've ever failed to keep the Sabbath holy, we violated the fourth. If we ever hated someone in our hearts, the fifth. If we've ever lusted in our hearts, the sixth. If we've ever taken something that did not belong to us, we violated the seventh commandment. If we ever dishonored or failed to obey our parents or any legitimate authority over us, we violated the eighth commandment. If we've lied about others to benefit ourselves, or been careless with their reputation, we violated the ninth commandment. If we've ever wished we had someone else's possessions or money or spouse, we've violated the 10th commandment. So clearly, we are all violators of God's law, but the scripture says it's worse <clears throat> even than that. Roman, in Romans, Paul teaches us that we have not only violated God's law more times than we can count, even apart from God's law, we violate the standards to which we hold others. Have you ever done that? Have you ever criticized somebody for doing the things that you do? We even violate our own conscience. We do things we think are wrong. We overcome our conscience and we violate it. We violate God's law. We violate the standard we hold others to. We violate our own conscience. But it still gets worse because the reason that we're so lawless, the scripture says, is that we are sinners by nature. Now, many people would admit, I've violated some of God's laws and I've done some of these things that we're talking about, but I'm not so sure this sin goes to the core of who I am. But scripture says it does. As the progeny of Adam and Eve, we are born sinners. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Psalm 51, 5 says, I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And Ephesians 2, 3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. In other words, even when we're not committing a sinful act and even when we're not indulging in a sinful attitude, we are sinners by nature. And this is why the Bible can say we are in bondage to sin because we can't change our nature and why we are dead in sins because we can't, again, change our very nature. We'd like to think we sin only because of outside pressures, but the Bible says it comes from within. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And in Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder. This is not a passive brokenness, which is a common word we use for sin these days. This is not brokenness. This is not sadness. This is not a feeling of frustration, all of which can come out of sin. This is active sin, active suppression of what God has made plain about himself and his truth. Colossians 1.21 says that we are enemies of God before we're saved. And Romans 8.7 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to his law, nor can it do so. And when sinners band together in communities and nations, it only gets worse. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3 asks, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed. 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from, from us. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, again, most people would say they don't feel that bad, and they certainly don't feel like they are enemies of God. We think, you know, maybe some some people are, but not me. And we can't really see how God could condemn us for doing the same things that everybody else is doing. And we can all point to things we've done that are better than what other people do and to things other people done who have worse than what we've done. And that's, that's where we like to live. We like to live in the world of relative good and evil. Good and evil as, as compared to other people. That's where we like to live. That's the standard we want to apply. We want to use our definitions of good and evil instead of his our way seems right, and his way seems overdone. That's exactly how Adam and Eve felt in the garden. Keep in mind, that's exactly the sin of Adam and Eve. They didn't want his standard. They wanted their own. But God is not like us. Remember, he is holy. And our very best deeds and intentions do not count for anything against a holy standard. I want you to pause for just a second and follow me in this thought experiment because I know it's hard for some people to grasp this idea that we might be sinners by nature. Picture a loving father and mother, young couple who just had their first baby. It's a baby boy. And in the hospital, the nurse brings the baby to the parents and the baby won't even look, won't look, won't turn his head and attempt to look into the face of the parents. I know newborns can't see much, but they look around and they try to focus on things, but they never look. They just, they look at other people, the boy does, but the boy won't look at his parents And this continues. Like any loving parents, they take him home and feed him and diaper him and clothe him and care for him. But he never looks at them. And he never acknowledges even really their existence. Other people come to the house and his first smile is to others and he never smiles at his parents. It's like they don't exist. Even as he grows up, he comes to the dinner table and he sits and he eats the food that is put before him. And his parents speak to him and ask him questions and express their love for him. And he speaks to other people and he laughs with other people and he learns to love and befriend and care for other people. They care for, he enters caring relationships with others. He'll even sacrifice for other people, but he will still never look at or acknowledge his parents. They try to make rules for him about doing chores around the house And he'll do his chores sometimes, but really only the ones that he wants to do anyway. He never does anything his parents ask if he doesn't see the benefit for himself. And the strange thing is he's not a bad kid overall. 
He works hard in school, makes pretty good grades, obeys his teachers pretty well, listens to his coaches, but he takes no interest in his parents. They make great sacrifices around their careers and their living situation and their finances for him, but he still never even acknowledges them. As he grows older, he moves out. He does pretty well, works hard, gets a good job. And he comes home twice a year to visit because, you know, he'd be embarrassed if he didn't come visit his parents at least twice a year, usually on Easter and Christmas. And he sits on the couch and they talk at him and he smiles and stares off into space. He's heard it all before and it's just a performance. And then he goes back to his regular life. When things go well in his life, he takes the credit. And when things go poorly, he blames his parents. And never in his whole life does he honor them. He never thanks them, and he never even tells others what they've done for him. And he never returns the love that they have shown for him. When his parents die, he doesn't send flowers. And when he is on his deathbed, all he can do is pity himself and wonder how his parents could have let him die like this. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Adam, that is an exaggerated, silly example. But I want to ask you, what would you say about this man? Is he a good person? Would you just say he made a few mistakes along the way? I don't think so. I think you'd look at his ingratitude to the ones who love him the most, the one who's the ones who gave him life. And you would say that reveals a heart that is unthinkably dark and wicked. How could a son behave that way toward his parents? This is ungratefulness that knows no bounds. It's so dark. And again, You may say, that's an exaggeration, Adam. That's a silly example. But this is what the sinful man does to God. Before we are saved, we live lives without honoring him, without acknowledging him, without thanking him. We barely even acknowledge that he exists. And we certainly don't revere him and worship him. What could be more wicked? What could reveal a more wicked heart? Than that. That's why Isaiah can say in chapter 64, all of us have become like the one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. No matter what that boy did, he made A's in school, cleaned his room, it could not make up for the darkness and the wickedness of his heart and how he lived it in such ungratefulness to those who gave him life and who loved him the most. And of course, because we're sinners, we're subject to death and the coming judgment. Alan preached a while back on the existence of hell. We're all familiar with Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Scripture teaches that there's three really aspects to death. Spiritual death, that's the inability to have peace with God. Physical death, as we become diseased and aged and die. This is the termination of the ability to be saved. 
And eternal death, of course, is eternal separation from God in hell. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is already being revealed against sinful mankind. But of course, there's far more to come. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says that the Lord Jesus will one day be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, God isn't waiting to see how we do in this life. We're already sinners by nature. He's already condemned the world and all of humanity, and the world has already been marked for destruction. And humanity has been sentenced under the curse levied in the Garden of Eden. So if this is all true, God is holy. We are accountable to him. But we are sinners by nature with no ability to meet God's holy standard, then how can anyone be saved? Well, this is the good news. The good news depends on the bad news. First, there are some facts that must be believed. Remember, the gospel is not a fable. Much of our society would want to teach us and tell us and convince us that the gospel is a fable. But it's not. It's not an ancient myth, and it's not a metaphor. There are real historical facts that you have to believe to be saved. I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 for you, where Paul says to the Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, by which you are being saved, for I delivered to you as of first importance... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So the most important facts of the gospel are clear. Christ died. He really died. He was really dead and really buried and he died for our sins. We'll talk some more about that. And the second fact is that he was raised on the third day. He was raised back to life. And the reason it says that he appeared to see to Peter and, and then to the 12 is to emphasize this is a historical thing that happened. The man, Jesus, the God-man, died, was buried, and was raised to life again. Those are facts that you must believe to be saved. Paul says these are of first importance. But even the demons believe the facts. Even Satan knows what's really going on. So he knows that as well. So that raises the question, how does the gospel work? You can't just agree to the facts. Something else has to happen. Well, Paul in Romans 1 through 4 lays out the gospel very carefully. The good news of the gospel is that sinners can be justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be justified? Justification is a legal standing. It means to be counted as perfectly righteous before God. There are two aspects of this. 
First, God imputes the believer's sin to Christ. So your sin is laid upon him. It is imputed to Christ and paid for or atoned for by Christ's death on the cross. His death absorbs the sin of his people past, present, and future. The imputation of sin to Christ. Second, God imputes the righteousness of the risen Lord to you, to your account, to the believer's account. Remember, we have no righteousness within us. So God grants to believers a righteousness from outside of us. He grants to believers a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and he credits it to our account as a legal justification. Now, there's a key distinction here. He does not make us righteous. He does not give us the power to be righteous and earn our salvation. He gives his righteousness as a gift and credits us with it, credits the believer with it. This puts us really at the heart of the gospel. When God saves a person, their sin is imputed to Christ who died to pay its penalty and the righteousness of the risen Christ is then imputed to the believer. That is the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the place to look. It says, for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This double imputation is the heart of the true gospel. This is justification. And it's all by grace. It isn't a thing you can accomplish. Remember, God doesn't make you righteous. He doesn't make you be able to earn holiness. It isn't a thing you can accomplish accomplish yourself. This double imputation can only be done by God. It's divine initiative, all accomplished by him. And it's through faith that we receive it. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Now, this is an act of love. This double imputation is an act of love, a love so great that most people say it's too good to be true. That may even be why they don't believe. They think it's too good to be true. It's a love of the great father for his children. The world has never known and can barely even comprehend a love so great or a gift so divine as this. So that begs the last question, how do I obtain this salvation? Well, there's no way around it. You have to repent. You have to repent of your sin. Both John the Baptist and Jesus began their public ministries by shouting, repent and believe. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. What is repentance? It means to confess your sinfulness to God and to turn away from sin. 
Again, this is not joining a movement to renew the culture. This is not taking your sadness or the hurts that you've suffered, as legitimate as those hurts may be, to God. It's not frustration with the fallenness around us, and it's not frustration with other people's sin. It is a confession. It's much more personal than all of that. To repent is to confess and agree that God would be right to condemn me for my sin. Yes, Lord, I am a sinner. It would be just not for you to judge the world or fix the world or take care of the. It would be just for you to condemn me for the darkness and the sin in my heart. That acknowledgement, that confession, and the turning away from your sin, that is repentance. And secondly, you have to put all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Remember, justification is by grace, but it's through faith. That is how it is delivered. In fact, it's through faith alone, not by your works, not by your attempts to be a better person. It's through faith alone, in Christ alone, as Paul said, as he is presented in the scriptures. Not the Jesus that we make up in our minds, not the Jesus that's out there in so many Christian books sometimes, the Jesus as he is presented in the scriptures. This is a trusting faith where you turn from your sin and you trust in him and are willing to change the entire direction of your life to follow him. It's a faith that makes you want to be baptized. Believers, be baptized. If you haven't been baptized yet, you need to speak up if you're a believer. It's a faith that makes you want to join a local group of believers like a church and have fellowship with them who believe the same thing, who have also repented and who are seeking to live as they ought, as servants of Jesus. It's a faith that makes you want to immerse yourself in his word. Believers love God's word. They want to know it, even when it's hard, even when they don't understand it. Remember when Jesus taught in parables and some people came to him and wanted to know the meaning and some people just walked away. They just took their own meaning from it. Believers want to know, what does this mean? I want to know. And believers want to learn to, work, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We still sin. We still struggle mightily with our sin. In fact, believers are more sensitive to their sin once they're saved. The struggle begins in many ways when you're saved. But oh, how you want to walk in a manner worthy of your new calling. If you're here this morning and you've never repented, never trusted in Christ as I've described, then perhaps today's the day. 
And if you feel a tug in your heart, I want to urge you, act on that today. Approach a pastor or a member of this church here today and let us pray with you. If you're already a Christian, and I know many of you are, because I know most of you, I hope you were refreshed this morning by hearing the gospel once again. You hear it here at Sunrise all the time in short form, as I said. But I hope you agree it's nice every now and then to stop and pause and to focus on the gospel as taught in the Bible And I hope you leave refreshed with that feeling of assurance. Yes, I believe this. Yes, I have repented. And yes, I have trusted in Christ. And I hope you're refreshed by the reminder that there there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That you are forgiven. That your salvation is secure in Christ because it's from him. And him alone. And no one can take it from him or from you. And I want to remind you as a believer that, as it says in Romans 5, 4, God's love has been poured, poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. In closing, I just want to say, you know, it, it is hard. It's hard to have biblical conversations with people in today's world. It's hard to use words like sin and wrath and to speak of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead, and we all get nervous, tongue-tied when we're in a position to do that. And we should be slow to judge those evangelists who are out there trying to find ways to break through this decaying culture that doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to engage. But the facts of the gospel do not change. And the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is not subject to change. I do think I see in the wider evangelical church today a drift that is occurring. It doesn't take a keen eye to see it, but I think it's intensifying. I'm calling it a gospel drift. There's a spirit of carelessness and even cavalierness sometimes in how many authors and preachers and podcast publishers out there speak of the gospel. I wonder sometimes if some people who call themselves Christians or evangelicals are actually ashamed of the gospel as it's presented in the scripture or maybe ashamed of God himself. Maybe they feel as if they have to apologize for him or for his word or for his character or for his attributes. And I don't think many of these authors and teachers and publishers would admit it, but I think that underneath this gospel drift is a resurging rejection of the inerrancy of the scriptures. I think we're going to see more and more arguments about that It's always been an argument, but I think we're going to see more and more closer to home. That would be just like Satan, wouldn't it? It would be just like Satan 
right at the moment when the culture has gone off the rails and our eyes are focused outward on all of the chaotic, crazy, unimaginable sins that are becoming commonplace in our culture, right as our heads are up looking outward, Satan would slip in right underneath the radar with subtle teachings that the gospel is outdated, the gospel doesn't work in this culture, it doesn't work anymore. You know, the culture will always be fickle. Christian fads will come and go. It's easy to go with the fads. It's easy to teach a false gospel. It's easy to let ourselves drip along with the spirit of the age. As G.K. Chesterton would say, it's, it's, it's easy to be a heretic as it is easy to be a snob. There are a million ways the church can err in preaching the gospel. A million ways to get it wrong. A million traps that Christians can fall into. Falling into those traps is easy. What's hard is for the church to stand its post as the bulwark of the truth. To keep its head when everybody else is losing theirs. And yet this is our task to embrace and teach the one true gospel as it really is. To a world that scorns it more and more. And to stand with the Apostle Paul who says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this majestic, awesome gospel for the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross, for his victorious resurrection, and for your imputation of his righteousness to your people. Father, we declare again today, we are not ashamed of the gospel. We thank you that in your grace and mercy, you have provided a way for sinners to be saved from your coming day of judgment. And we declare once and for all that although cultures shift with the wind and worldly philosophies and kingdoms and nations come and go, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We praise you this morning and offer these things in Jesus' holy name, amen.